Hi, my name is Deborah Ogden and I would like to welcome you to On Brand With. Through this podcast, I want to bring you into my world of personal brand and impact and hopefully bring it to life through the experiences of me and my guests. Over the coming episodes, I will talk to a range of people I know and admire and ask them about the different ways they use their personal brand, the positive benefits it can bring and what best practice looks like in the real world. My guest today is Ali Yates, author, leadership coach and learning consultant. Now that's how her LinkedIn profile describes her, but I want to add more. She really is one of the wisest, most insightful people I've had the pleasure of being introduced to over the last few years. When I refer to and talk about gravitas and charisma, I talk about a balance, a blending of expertise and credibility with warmth and connection. And Ali truly embodies this. Her focus is on behaviours and neuroscience, but it is backed up with academic rigour. Seriously, her list of qualifications is impressive. She describes herself as obsessionally curious and I was left wanting to learn even more from her after this conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Ali, it is so lovely to see you. I just wish we were doing this in person, don't you? Well, thank you very much for inviting me. And yes, you're absolutely right. Being together would be wonderful, but let's make the most of what we've got. Absolutely. So I was having a look and I was reading somebody had written you, uh, written about you, that you are uplifting and inspiring. And I thought, what a wonderful way to describe you in the short time that I've known you. Absolutely. I would uh, agree with that. But I just wonder how somebody who is so used to lifting up other people and being inspiring. I'm sure that's not a, a conscious thing that you go about every day, but it's just part of your makeup. How have you managed to inspire yourself and keep yourself, you know, at the right place during lockdown? Well, there have been moments where that's been a real challenge. Mm-hmm. I think what's been really helpful for me as I've gone through lockdown is the ability to stay connected to the people that mean a lot to me. Uh, So primarily that's my family, uh, but it's also a number of the clients that I work with and feeling that there's a real sense of meaning to the work that I'm doing, that I'm I'm making a contribution and and that it's of value. So there's a reason to get up in the morning. Yeah, absolutely. And, And do you have family at home? You're all in there together, keeping each other going. Yeah, yes, I have. Um, I have a son who really wishes he was somewhere else in that he graduated last year. So probably the worst time to graduate. Really looking forward to a year of travelling before settling down into a career. Uh, But instead finds himself living at home again. Slightly tricky after four years of being away doing a master's. Um, But he's now uh, got a job locally and just looking forward to the day when 
uh, he can travel again. So yeah, he's at home, his girlfriend has joined us and of course I've got my husband here too. Yeah. So I was looking and I know you are somebody who's worked globally for a long, long time. But again, I was just doing a little bit of rooting around and a bit of research before we chatted. And I noticed that back in early March last year, I think it was the 12th of March, you you wrote a, a an article on LinkedIn, published an article all about remote working and working online. And I thought, has Ali got a crystal ball? Because that would have <laughs> been before we even went into lockdown. Yeah, that's true. And, and it does come from my many years of working with multinational global organisations, uh, where often, you know, you'll be working with teams that are based across the world, and they have real challenge in how they, how they create that sense of team, and also how they move their work around the clock. Uh, mm-hmm. as one office shuts and another office opens. So I've spent quite a bit of my time working with teams to help them to get the sense of team and build in the behaviours of high-performing teams that you get much more easily if you're all in the same office. And has that been something that the teams... We'll talk a little bit about where you are in your career in a minute, but has that been something that even those that have been used to working online because of the geographical situation have they still struggled have they still had to work at it a little bit more maybe I think what people are finding challenging now is the fact that this this really is a marathon Mm. in the sense of it's gone on and on and on much longer than people have could have predicted and so where people have normally been quite resilient their stamina is weakening a little bit and I think they're finding that challenging so it's that sort of psychological dimension of I'm not quite sure how much longer this I can go on with this that seems to be getting in the way for a lot of people at the moment. Yeah and I think it's that certainly a lot of the conversations I've been having um, I think you know I, I run a membership and one of the sort of in the peer groups one of the things that has come up time and time again is you know the challenge of home working the challenge of homeschooling and the conversation always comes back to we're not homeschooling we're actually schooling from home in, in a crisis and this isn't a choice which puts a different perspective on it doesn't it yeah I'm, I'm absolutely in awe of some of the people that I work with and what they're having to manage and juggle so when you've got for example both parents working and children under the age of five you know they need that attention they want to know that you're there for them and you know when you you're an adult with a very responsible job it's like oh, how on earth do I do I split my time and people have had to get very creative about that and equally, you know, I'm working with some people who just find it hard to get into that groove of working in a place that's not the office. Mm-hmm. So we've looked at, you know, how can we try and recreate that, even to the extent of, you know, get up in the morning, have your shower, have your coffee, have your breakfast, but then put on your coat mm-hmm. and take a walk around the block <laughs> as, as if to replace the daily commute that yeah, you would have. Yeah. And then when you come back, you're ready for work, you've had that thinking time, you can sit down, get on with your job, and then at the end of the day, have a similar routine, just something that that, um, simulates uh, a working routine. 
rather what, than just yeah. drifting in the house. What a super idea. I mean, I, I, I do that in the morning without being conscious of it. So it's just something to set me up for the day. I like to be up and I, I have my, I'm a big believer in a really strong morning routine. It means that I'm a lot more proactive rather than reacting to yeah. the day. Um, and so I, I take myself off around the block and I sometimes do the same at lunchtime. I've not thought about doing it at the end of the day. And actually, it's sometimes the end of the day when things go a bit pear-shaped because my son Oscar has finished his homeschooling and I'm, as ever against the clock as we always are when we've just got a workload to cope with and then you're thinking oh well I've got to think about the meals and it's at that point that I struggle to put a line under things so I, top tip for today I think I'll be doing that at the end of the day as well. Oh that's great to hear that you know I think those boundary distinctions are really helpful mm. to help keep our sanity. Yeah absolutely so We've launched straight in, but tell, tell, talk a little bit about your career and where you are now, Ali, and just tell us how you got there, because I know it, it's been a long career and fascinating career, um, and I don't know how you found the time to do all the qualifications and research you've done as well. So just give us a, a little uh, insight into your world. Well, I think maybe the thing I say that characterizes me is I'm a lifelong learner mm. so I'm always interested in expanding what I know about something I'm, I'm deeply curious about things uh, and I've always tried to learn a bit more about things that I hope will serve my clients well mm. so for example um, I think maybe five or six years ago I, I studied neuroscience mm -hmm. because I could see how the, the, the research that was emerging was really helping us to understand not just humans, but actually humans at work. Okay. And I found that some of the, the, the rationale that science could provide, data-based uh, information, was really useful for some of my client groups who were quite logical and mm. quite sceptical of anything to do with you know, emotion uh, and reactions so you know with engineers accountants lawyers that kind of fact-based works really well um so what am I doing now well I also last I've lost count now but I think it's about 18 19 years I've worked as an independent consultant um and I work with people across a range of industries uh, financial services manufacturing professional services uh, so I, and I love that variety. Um, petrochemical is another area, and and also at lots of different levels within the organisations. Mm -hmm. So I'm really comfortable working with technicians out in the field, and I'm equally comfortable working at board level too. Mm -hmm. and, and and I like that variety. And I suppose that comes from what's as you mentioned has been a very diverse career. But I started off um, my professional life. Well, actually, I started off my professional life as a DJ on a radio station in Vancouver. Really? Mm, but I was working under the table, so perhaps we shouldn't go into that anymore <laughs> at this say, stage. I want, I want to know more about that. Yeah, it, was, it was a great experience. Um, I came back to the UK to start my studies, and I started off as an occupational therapist and mm -hmm. got very interested in mental health. 
Uh, and then once I'd finished my qualifications as, a, as an occupational therapist, I also then studied uh, a postgraduate qualification in counselling and psychotherapy with the University of Leeds. And that really gave me a lot of insight into the human condition. And I was really lucky each summer to be working on a summer school. Um, and the key speaker at that summer school was a guy called Professor Jerry Egan, who had written a book called The Skilled Helper. And what I noticed on these summer schools where I was the administrator but able to sit in was that we had a number of people that came from large organisations wanting to understand how they could use his work effectively. And, and I sat at the back of the room thinking, actually, this is just the same as my work in psychiatry. Mm-hmm. We're talking about sick organisations, if you like, or organisations that are struggling. And they, ha- they are experiencing at an organisational level the same things that the individuals are that I'm working with. I'm, I'd be quite interested in, in getting involved in that. And I was just super lucky. It, you, you know when they say there's no such thing as coincidence? Mm. While I was at the summer school, I opened the Sunday paper and there was a job saying, you know, an interesting consultancy is looking for some interesting people to join. I joined them and that was my transition into the corporate world. Mm-hmm. So I was quite young at that stage. I was a woman. I knew nothing about financial and professional services, which was the sector that I started working mm-hmm. in. And I was very fortunate that I had a boss who overlooked all of that and really saw something in me, nurtured that and enabled me to grow into somebody that could have an impact in that mm-hmm. environment. And that gave me the confidence to to move on uh, as a consultant into many other different roles. So I went from there to Coopers and Librand and then PwC, uh, then a smaller consultancy that was based in the north of England, and then finally to be an independent. And so, because you've touched on a couple of things there when you were talking about the neuroscience and that uh, challenge sometimes when you are talking about emotions maybe and behaviours, and this is something that I know we've talked about before, that it's sometimes challenging to come in with these subjects around um, impact and it and different professions, different different people tune into different areas. But I would have thought when you set out in consultancy in in. I don't know, would it have been the early 90s? I, I don't know, I can't do Late 80s, and, yeah. Yeah, late, late 80s, 80s early yeah. 90s. Then I would have thought the even the idea of talking about emotion and vulnerability and, you know, actually being uh, courageous is being brave enough to say, actually, I need some help here or I don't know the answer to that. I would have thought that was as far away from the experience you had in those days. Absolutely. They were chalk and cheese Mm. with a few notable exceptions. You know, I can still remember those bosses or those individuals that really stuck out because they demonstrated some humility or they were very other people centric rather than you know look at me I'm a very important partner but I think we've learned a lot during uh, the last 30 years about what makes us tick uh, and 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 also particularly in consulting 
how to be able to work sustainably over long periods of time. And I remember one of the kind of revelatory experiences I had was when I was at uh, Coopers and Lybrand, we had what we called the Partner Survival Programme mm-hmm. because there was a recognition in the partnership that, mm-hmm. you know, if people carried on working the hours they did, uh, having the kind of life pattern of boozy lunches and dinners with clients and putting on weight and not being very healthy, that this wasn't good for us. And this was, you know, back in the mid-90s, so quite progressive. And we had a fantastic programme at the time where we had an Olympic athlete, where we had a, um, a, a psychologist that focused on stress management. We had Dr. John Briffer um, at the early stages of his career, and he came and did blood analysis and talked to us about our diet. And it really created a shift in the partnership towards being able to look after myself as a partner and of course if you do that as a partner then you can look after your people so much better too and it that's modeling from the top as well isn't Isn't it it? yeah yeah Yeah. absolutely and you know we talk about well-being now and I know certainly from some of the feedback that I've heard even over the last um, 10 months are we on now how some of the it was a law firm particularly that I was talking to that you know, people still haven't got it right all this time on and that, you know, they were under pressure and with the juggling of childcare and and I think we've come so far, but we've still got quite a way to go. Yeah, I think there's a great title of uh, of uh, Brene Brown's, mm-hmm. I think it's her latest book, Dare to Lead. And mm-hmm. you talked earlier on about being courageous. Mm-hmm. And I think it is about people having that courage, being bold enough to say, actually, I can only be effective if I look after myself well, uh, and to really understand what it is that's stopping them from doing that. Yeah, I think that's a fabulous book, actually. I've I've listened and read it because uh, I listened because Brené uh, narrates the audio, and I was so taken by it and challenged by it in some areas as well um, I reread it and I've shared it with a number of clients and interestingly enough as, as we're talking it, it's just come to mind I was talking to a, a former client uh, yesterday who worked for a big organisation and when I first went in he used to always be talking about command and control and I know the very first time I sat in and we laughed about this yesterday he was virtually uh very stereotypical in that he had his arms folded and leant back in his chair and you know come on Deborah what are you going to what what are you going to tell me that I don't know already what are you going to bring to the table and he said to me yesterday I've just got something to share with you he said um, we didn't know about the pandemic when we first started working together he said but when I realized that I was going to have to implement this um, transition for to people working from home he said I'd already started already started to listen to you he said but I just talk to them as people rather than as a process and he said I can't I can't thank you enough he said because I wouldn't have looked at it in that way and he said and he was talking about some of the team have got young children. He said, I've now got to see all their children because they appear on the Zoom calls and we've stopped team meetings to help with the maths homework. 
And he said, actually, the loyalty and the team and the goodwill that we have built through that. And he said, I honestly didn't believe it would work. I, I didn't believe you when you first came in. And and I shared with him Dare to Lead. And I, I said to him yesterday, have you read it? Because um, I did wonder at the time, I think it might have been cast to one side. I think that's a wonderful insight. And it reminds me of, you know, what I see happening in lots of organisations at the moment, which is that people are so task focused that they don't spend the time to connect with people as people. Mm. And of course, that just increases the sense of isolation that people are feeling through working remotely. So one of the other things that you may have seen that I posted on LinkedIn was uh, a piece around check-ins. So the importance at the beginning of a meeting of just spending time checking in with people to find out what's preoccupying them Mm. right now, what it is that might be distracting them uh, from their work. The origins of that coming from um, oil oil platform disasters Mm. and making really trying to make sure that people's heads were in the right space. So giving them the opportunity to talk about stuff that was bothering them so that when they go out into these high risk environments, Mm. they can perform. We're in a, we're in another kind of risky environment right now, risky to people's health and well-being. Mm -hmm. So just creating that opportunity to offload or to connect about what did you do this week? What are you most looking forward to? Uh, what surprised you this week? What have you learned this week? They're all great ways of just bringing that human dimension to what we do. So it isn't all about deliver, deliver, deliver. And through that connection, I think people feel, oh, I'll go the extra mile. I was, I was talking to some um, junior lawyers last week uh, through the Leeds Junior Law, Law Society and um, I know you, you have people within your uh, family that are, are on that path and I was looking at the statistics beforehand that, you know, there are sort of 25,000 law students signing up per year and yet there are 6,000 contracts and then it's cumulative each year. And I was just thinking, my goodness, when I set out as a law student, it was tough, but it was nothing like that. And I was always the average law student. You know, I wasn't the academic, but I learned at a very early age. And I don't know if this goes back to my parents or school, or probably a mix of everything that there's so much more than the academic and if you play to those strengths that can really help you and I was talking to these young lawyers because so many of them the expectation for academic brilliance is there and then when they get into an organisation to perform and I said to them actually that pressure is there but that's an expectation now and therefore there's this whole other area that you can bring to the table that I always say is simple but it's not easy it's so much more simple than what you've learned academically but it's about putting it into practice and that self-awareness and how you can go the extra mile and be aware of your behaviours can be life-changing and career-changing Yeah, I think I've seen such a shift in how people attract talent into an organisation. And, you know, at the beginning of my working career, really quite unidimensional 
and boring, frankly, in terms of how we selected people. So if I think back to my early consulting days, you know, you had a set of criteria. They had to have had a 2-1 as a minimum. They had to have come from certain universities. Mm. And actually, that's so different now. The, the more, I would say, this more mature and insightful organisations are actually looking for those qualities and characteristics that individuals have that will make a difference. So their ability to take initiative, their, their, the, the resourcefulness that they've demonstrated, the experiences that they've had in their lives so that they're able to bring an appreciation of um, you know, the diversity of, of our world mm. to the working environment. And I'm seeing a big shift in how organisations re- recruit talent and, and, and looking for those qualities over, over credentials, if you like. Yeah, it's, you've brought to mind a conversation I had with um, a colleague last week and she works in a big law firm and she's part of the recruitment panel for their graduates at the moment. And um, she was saying that she's got a new, she, she's part of the um, inclusion and diversity team, but has got a particular passion for social mobility. And she was saying that it was fascinating looking at some of these um, CVs and applications coming through and diversity across the board and how some of these stories, she said, I, I virtually felt that I wanted to put some of the left field candidates in because of the resilience and what they've overcome to get where they are and what that brings to an organisation. You know, so many of us can learn from that. Yes, and I think if we're if we look at, as organisations, what's the the demographic that we serve? You know, what's our client group represented representative of, uh, and how how well do we match them? Mm. Is a question that would serve many organisations well to ask. And I I can think back to can't quite remember when it was maybe late nineties. You know, Yorkshire Water ahead of the curve there when they were doing their recruiting. It's a very diverse county Yorkshire Mm -hmm. but the way they went about recruiting so that they could serve their diverse population was novel Mm -hmm. you know using Asian radio stations for example as a means of recruiting and nobody had ever thought of that before Mm. Uh, um, and yet so important if we're wanting to connect with the people that we serve yeah something else that I read you'd written and, and that really resonated with me so and it was a conversation I had with these young lawyers, but it's a conversation I have with virtually every client that I work with at whatever level, talking about connection, but about that. So so I, I talk about these three Cs, your, your clarity, your um, communication, and then capitalising the visibility piece and that clarity of your audience, but not just talking about a demographic, but having a real understanding of Mm. that audience and what their challenges are. And therefore having that clarity before you communicate. But one thing that you'd um, mentioned was about that connection and that ability to connect internally within the organisation, but also externally. So it, it benefits the person and their career at that moment but also has that long-term interest as well and I do think there is a challenge there that maybe young people feel that there are people out there that will 
look after their career and have an interest in their career when the reality is everybody's so busy doing their own job that yes there are people managing talent but I think one of the greatest things a young person can do is take ownership of that career and have a strategy and know where they to some degree know where they want to be heading. I think one of the things that in my experience has been hugely helpful is having that kind of board of directors creating that network of people who have been very helpful to me during my career at different stages and it's not always been the same people so sometimes you an individual may have been on my board of directors for a couple of years but then I'm heading off in a different direction and I might lean on another resource Mm. so and I often use that as a way of trying to encourage younger people to start to think about not how they want to build their network for what they're doing right now Mm. but what kind of network might be useful to them in the future Um, Professor Himenia Abara writes very eloquently about that in her book, Act Like a Leader, Think Like a Leader, and the, the importance of extending your network because of where you want to get to rather than just the people that you know right now in the job that you're doing right now, um, but really trying to be future focused. Yeah, I I talk a lot about cheerleaders and having the people that can really help you, that can mentor you either formally or informally. And there's that phrase, isn't there, that success leaves clues. So being able to see people that um, you admire and it, 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 it... guides us it um, inspires us and I think having somebody seem especially when things are changing so much having people that can inspire us and I mean you talk beautifully about that self-belief but having that belief and you know I can do that because we stand in our own way so many times don't we indeed and and I think equally as well as looking at people who can inspire us and think what could I learn from them it's looking at those people where you think never want to do anything like that (laughs) and learning what not to do and really noticing that impact and thinking well that's not the kind of leader I would want to be so what would I need to be doing be doing differently and how would I manage that in that context and I always try and encourage people to be a bit curious too when you see those um let's call them non-role models, the people that you really don't want to become like. But always try to ask people to be curious about that. You know, what is it about that individual that's causing him or her to behave Mm -hmm. in that way? And just stopping and asking that question just helps the individual to resist being judgmental Mm. uh, and actually try to understand the other person a little bit better. So it goes to that clarity before you communicate piece that you were mentioning earlier. Yeah, and uh, just taking that a little bit further, one of my favourite podcasts is Dr. Rangan Chatterjee. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, and um, is it Live More, Live... Uh, live, live, live More, Live Better or something yeah, like that, Feel Better. I always get it yeah. wrong. Um, but, and I'll, I'll link it in the... Um, podcast notes but one of his episodes is with a chap called Peter Crone and it's my favorite episode and they actually brought him back for a second episode and he's the mind architect and he has the most incredible story to tell but he talks about he truly believes that 
how can we judge anybody? Because if we had walked the path that they've walked, if we had had their experiences, their education, their upbringing, we would be in exactly the same position, responding in exactly the same way as they are. So actually just get rid of any judgment and be curious instead. And and as you say, I love that. Let's let's learn from the people that we think, hmm, not sure. And we can learn from ourselves, can't we? Um, you know, I talk about feet work with clients with feedback and I say, well, you know, that's the gold dust. That's the stuff that you say, well wait a minute, why was I perceived in that way? Yeah, absolutely. There's so much in what you said just there. And I was first of all reminded by uh, a quote that I heard. I'm studying systemic constellations at the moment, so organisations as constellations and how that impacts their effectiveness. And, And a quote from that is, nobody does anything wrong given their model of the world. And And I think if we can approach everything and everybody with that framework that allows us to then enter into a dialogue with them to try to understand their frame of the world as opposed to approach it with a sense of well I'm right and you're wrong and as as soon as we do that we've put up a barrier and I think the second point that really struck me in what you'd said was actually uh, about the power of feedback and that feedback is the fuel for our development And, and what we're seeing in some of the more recent research about feedback that's coming out of the Neuro Leadership Institute is that the higher performers are those people who are asking for that feedback because they, they really they have got their ears open to, well, what is it that I can do differently and better? And I often say to the people that I'm working with, if you, if you, if you just want to start building that feedback muscle, simply ask people the question, What's one thing I could do that would make your life easier or make this job Mm. better or help you right now? Mm. Just the one thing. And it just starts to help practice building that muscle. You know, and this sort of fits with some of Brene Brown's work again, doesn't it? In that it's been able to articulate those questions articulate those feelings those concerns but also to to communicate because so often we we assume people are mind readers and people we we think that people understand the situation we're in or what we are struggling with and quite often just by being brave enough to ask that question ask for that feedback articulate the challenge that we're having um it disperses all that anxiety and opens up the pathway for that conversation and i think as leaders in organizations it's really important to set the tone for that mm. so you you talked earlier on about vulnerability and how you know 30 years ago we really didn't go there but now as a leader i think it's almost expected that you will be able to ask your team or well, what could i have done differently there or you could reflect on that yourself and go back and share that with with the team mm-hmm. but the the ability to be a role model in that regard really helps to create the environment where your team can perform because they can see uh, that you are just as vulnerable as they are. You're yeah. human too and you're very approachable as a consequence. 
absolutely we're work in progress all of us and and i think it's another brené and and i'm not sure i didn't mention this last week actually on the podcast but there's a phrase that seems to fit here and it's about showing up in all our imperfect glory mm. and you know i i laugh and i've laughed many times on the podcast that i'm a recovering perfectionist and it's something that i really struggle with um but it's about knowing that it's that self-belief again and it's good enough and put it out there and i tell myself you know progress is better than perfection and and it's about working through that and realize and being curious and realizing that every day is a school day actually and we're, mm. we are constantly learning you know like you said right at the beginning yes it's just another step towards wherever we're headed none of us is ever the finished product <laughs> Talking about uh, where we're headed, you have this fabulous book out um, already, Utter Confidence, that I've been uh, reading. We'll come on to that. But you have another book as well, I believe, that you're you're working on as well. Yeah, I'm working on a book. I haven't quite decided what to call it yet, but it's um, it's really the piece of organisations that's fascinated me most over the years, and it's that transition from being an individual contributor in a business to being a manager for the first time because there's so much involved in that you know firstly your whole identity is usually around your technical expertise you know you're the subject matter expert or you're very good at something and when you transition to being a manager it often means you've got to stop the work that you were Mm -hmm. doing previously but so many of us find that hard to do because mm-hmm. that's the, the base of our identity in mm-hmm. the organisation. So I talk about this concept called the shift mm-hmm. when we make that transition and what it is that we need to stop doing and what it is that we need to start doing in order to be an effective manager. Mm-hmm. And why that? why is that so important? Well, if you think about what it takes to be a, a manager of a team for the first time, and then maybe a manager of a function, then maybe a manager of a bigger function, then maybe a leader enterprise-wide, mm. you know, that's quite a pipeline that you mm. have to go up. And and if you if you can't master some of those really critical um, elements of the transition at the uh, at the at the start of your management and leadership career, my experience is they haunt you mm. later on in your career. So you end up having, you know, an executive who's a detail freak and mm. is in the detail and preventing people from performing, you know, when actually it's not a good use of his or her time and it's really demoralizing to the team that he or she is working with. So it's really about how do we how do we make that transition, not only so that, that it helps you be successful at the time, but it creates a really solid foundation as you continue to move up that ladder uh, to, into higher leadership positions. So again, people need that clarity, don't they, of, of the direction they're going. And, um, you know, I, I quite often have people come to me and it's only when we start working through values, through purpose, through through um, their vision that all of a sudden they say, oh, I'm on this path and I'm not sure this is really where I want to be. Mm-hmm. And you can see the absolute um, bombshell of this thought. And so and and. 
life changes and, and things happen and I don't, you know, things, certainly when I set out, I set out as a lawyer and yes, it's been a huge um, help to my career and I love working in the profession now, but I never thought I would be working as I am now and I think that has changed even more. So I think of my peers, my network, the number of us that have maybe set up as consultants, set up on our own and are in very different space than we were when we set out or, or left university. And therefore, I think it is hard. But having those, those that broader clarity, that not just career clarity, but life clarity can really help. Yeah, I think... At the moment, the whole kind of COVID situation has caused an absolute outburst of people being at a transition in their lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the, the ability to be able to support people through that transition, either within an organisation or outside an organisation, is really important and, and, and is much needed work at the mm-hmm. moment. And I know I've introduced you to Rafael Janaski. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's a, an independent coach and he's focusing primarily on that transition because it's a you know it's a pain point for people in organizations at the moment and what you also said has reminded me of the notion of leading with purpose and yes that's important for leaders but I think all of us want to know why are we getting out of bed in the morning Mm -hmm. so being able to have that clarity of well what at what is my role what am I here to do not just how I'm defined by work but in my broader life really helps and no more so than in a time like we've got at present yeah um when I was I was reading your your book on on utter confidence and we'll talk about that in a moment in in behavior analysis but um one of the things I, I talk to people about is telling stories and people will remember stories and just thinking there about purpose. When I was talking to these young lawyers last week, one of my favorites is um, the story of uh, JFK going to NASA in the early 1960s and seeing a janitor working away in the corner with real vigour and passion and him going over and saying, you know, introducing himself and saying, who are you? And the guy stands up and shakes his hand and says, I'm helping put a man on the moon. And I, I just think it's such a wonderful story. And if we can just capture that bigger picture, um, I worked with the grammar school at Leeds a few years ago and we were talking about you're not just delivering science, you may be helping create the child that finds the answer to the the, uh, cure for cancer and just that bigger picture all of a sudden makes puts a whole different lens on things, doesn't it? I think it's really important too that the organisations that we work with can do that at the organisational level, but also create the opportunity for people to be able to create their own stories within the organisation as to why they're there and why this is important for them. Okay, Ali, I'm conscious of time, but I just want to talk about utter confidence because I've been fascinated by this, about the behaviour analysis and how something to me... um, that seems so intuitive and emotional um actually there is this wonderful framework that is objective 
that can help people have more impact in their communication. So just share sort of uh, for the audience a little bit about how this can help them. Maybe I should give a little bit of context first and explain a bit about what behaviour analysis is. So I was very lucky in the late 80s, early 90s uh, to work with an organisation that had been led by uh, Neil Rackham, who some people will have heard about through some of his seminal sales literature like spin selling and account strategy for major sales. But what Neil actually started was a a whole host of research studies into what is it that effective performers do that differentiate them from the average. And he did that in lots of different settings. Uh, So, for example, there were 42,000 different people from various organisations, from professional services through to selling photocopiers Mm -hmm. that were observed in terms of sales behaviours. And he also looked at a number of different organisations in terms of team meetings and what it was that made those meetings effective, what made those some people higher performers or perceived as higher performers than others. So I was really lucky to be able to work on some of that research and did a a lot of shadowing of bankers doing their negotiations and learning about the behaviours that led to effective negotiators. And I also did a lot of work around the team leadership. And what I loved about the research is that it teased things out to the level of behaviour. What is it that somebody actually says that makes a difference to their perceived effectiveness and their actual effectiveness. And the reason I like that particularly is because we can all do something to change our behaviour. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, whereas if it's a comment about my personality, well, I'm slightly oh, yeah. more limited around what I can do. So behaviour analysis is really a, a rather grandiose term for being able to capture everything that comes out of your mouth. So I would sit and observe people in meetings and I would categorise what it was that came out in that discussion and as a consequence be able to compare that with these success models. You know, what is it that really effective boards are doing? What is it that teams that work well are doing that get rated highly by their colleagues within the organisation? And what it led us to understand is that there's a, a, a group of, 13, 15 different behaviours, depending on which way you cut it, that build up uh, a repertoire of effectiveness and uh, allow you to make purposeful choices Mm. when you're in those discussions, allow you to diagnose what's going on and notice where, you know, somebody's being dominant and what you might be able to do differently uh, is hugely beneficial in the whole topic of inclusion, so how you make sure that everybody can have their say, Mm -hmm. but also back to that piece that I said earlier, encouraging people to be curious and to lead with questions uh, rather than always be giving information and leading with opinion or reason. So um, it it became a passion in my my work. And again, it's something because it's behaviour focused that people can very easily change. So I work a lot with individuals and with groups, bringing that behavioural perspective and helping them broaden their repertoire of behaviours that they can use so they can be more effective in the work environment. 
yeah i'd recommend anybody to have a look at your work on it and again I'll, i'll link it in the notes but what i found fascinating is that just and and for me whether it's the work i do on individual behavior and impact it's all about awareness and just by looking at that list of your 15 behaviors it made me think about gosh you know and and virtually analyzing the next call I went on I virtually felt I was analyzing myself and and how how it worked so I just felt that that awareness was absolutely key but also um it it brought to mind i was i was talking to somebody who was um saying about people that are more extroverted and more introverted and how actually a lot of people have found that communicating on online and zoom for the more introverted has been a godsend because they are able to use the chat function and whereas a lot of people and I know you you talk about this find it difficult sometimes to break into the conversation I mean it's hard enough to break into a conversation sometimes around a, a, a meeting a boardroom table in real life isn't it but to break into an online virtual chat is even more challenging but people saying that they were able to express their opinion through the chat function in a way that they never would have done in real life and I felt that was a really interesting angle on online communications. Mm. Well I think you hit upon the fact that awareness is key there mm-hmm. if we're going to if we're going to make any change we've got to be aware mm-hmm. of what we're doing right now and the way in which we'd like to change and doing more of something mm-hmm. um is much easier than doing less of something so focusing <laughs> yeah. on those behaviors that i want to develop and strengthen mm-hmm. is much easier than th- thinking oh i must do less of something it's interesting what you say about introverts because you know, speaking as an introvert myself, mm. <laughs> uh, introverts typically get their energy from reflecting. So needing time to think and and therefore in a meeting environment, it's it's I think there are a couple of dimensions here. One is it's important that we, we create time and space for everybody to make a contribution, regardless of whether they're introvert or extrovert. But I think another thing about being an introvert is not liking to be put on the spot. Mm, And so sometimes actually the way we set meetings up and help people to think about the topics that are on the agenda is just as important as the way that we behave in those meetings so mm. that as an introvert, I've had time to reflect and prepare. Mm. Mm. Um, and I certainly don't want somebody to say to me, what do you think before mm. I've had the opportunity to consider the information that yeah. I've had? I do think it's really important, and this is often the case for introverts more than extroverts, to be able to help people to see how they can get into a conversation constructively because if you're in a meeting and it's dominated mm. by some people who are uh, very talkative, mm. it it's not just timing that helps you get in. There are some other key skills that you need to be able to make sure that your voice can be heard. I think what I'm seeing now, a lot of my work right now is focusing on online learning mm-hmm. and uh, just noticing the, the challenge of bringing really top quality interactive learning Mm -hmm. 
to the screen. You know, when you're using platforms like Zoom and Adobe Connect and Teams, you can't just transplant a program that you would have run face to face and stick it online. You've really got to design it very differently, look at the functionality that the that the tool provides for you and think about how am I going to use that? So everybody has the opportunity to make a contribution and be heard and ask questions to clarify their learning. So we have to think even harder about that in the online environment, I think, because you're often missing a lot of the the cues and cues and clues that you might get yeah. in, in yeah, a the face-to-face environment. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, I am going to wrap the conversation up although I could talk to you all day and I've got more questions so maybe we'll have to revisit this sometime when we're allowed to meet over a real cup of coffee Ali but um so so what does the future hold you've got plans for your book um I know you've got plans you you've been um developing a a house in Wales what are the plans for you for the future well certainly getting getting the content of the book out there in some shape or form the the target audience is younger people mm-hmm. and and i think certainly using podcasts and instagram mm-hmm. uh, might be a way forward with that so i'm just exploring those different possibilities right now um so that's certainly on the agenda more travel yeah uh is on the agenda just Please. missing, 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 being able to go to different cultures and learn yeah. more about different parts of the world. And I've become very interested in the whole area of dialogue mm-hmm. and the importance of dialogue in business. So again, that goes back to behaviours mm-hmm. uh, and really understanding how to listen to the other person's point of view and not allowing my, my judgments and preconceptions to get in the way. And only when I can truly understand the other person can we start to make progress. Um, and that also includes things like, you know, being able to disagree constructively and to have, a, you know, I can, I might not agree with you, but I can hear what it is that it is that you're saying and what your point of view is. So I'm, I'm going to continue to study that with um, a, a very inspiring woman, Sarah Rosentuller. Mm-hmm. Um, she's just published a second book, Powered by Purpose, which I would recommend anybody who's interested in purpose to read. And I'm also going to continue studying my systemic constellation work too. So something just to keep my grey matter ticking over. So you're keeping learning and staying curious. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time today, Ali. I've I've really enjoyed it. I've I've got more questions that I've not got to, but would be here forever. I think... um, I just love your insight. I love the curiosity that brings comes out in the conversation and I've learned so much today and I'm sure the audience have. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much for inviting me, Deborah. It's been a real pleasure. you've enjoyed today's conversation and I'd love you to join in the conversation as well. The best way to do that is through social media and I can be found at Instagram and Twitter at do underscore impact. If you'd like to sign up for my newsletter or learn more about my monthly membership, the Impact Club, please visit the website at deborahogden.com.
If you've enjoyed this episode of On Brand With, I would so appreciate it if you would rate, review and subscribe. It helps other people know we exist. Thanks for tuning in and I'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to On Brand With. It was hosted by Deborah Ogden and produced by me, Anthony Short. This has been an A Short Stories production. Thank you.